Welcome to Connect with Success with Dr. Lynette Scatiswatilla, where we help connect you with knowledge. Our mission is to lead you to a new and exciting way of understanding, responding to, and helping all those with autism. We hope to expand your thinking about how to best serve these amazing people and how to support you in your daily struggles and celebrations. Welcome everyone to episode four of our Connect with Success podcast built around the success approach. The person who coined it, Dr. Lynette Scottie-Swatilla, and the people who use it and benefit from it every day. In today's episode, Dr. Lynette's going to discuss another one of the common ideas when it comes to understanding and helping a child or adult with autism. She's going to give it a name that you may or may not have heard before in the field of autism. My name is Dr. Richard Smith, and I'll be facilitating our discussion about this idea that we should understand and support in all those we live with or care for with autism. So, Lynette, what is our term that you're going to share with us this episode? Today's term is sensory processing. Sensory processing is basically a brain process, and we use it often and address it often in occupational therapy. By definition, it's the process through which we register, process, and interpret sensory information so we can organize it and use it for function. It's kind of a simple idea, but it's very, very complex, and it it occurs at the most primitive parts of the brain. All right. Well, I, I'm excited because we actually we actually have our first guest on the show today. It's yes. someone that we both know very well, um, and we're excited to have her. And, and honestly, I'm kind of having a fanboy moment because I've got the two best angels on earth here with me because uh, they helped me to reach out to my daughter, um, who's on the spectrum, and uh, it's yeah. It was like a life-saving. It was like a life-saving moment for us all. So I'm excited for you guys to meet them because we know Dr. Lynette, but to have Ellen with us too is just having a, a complete dynamic in the room that I wish you guys could be here to see. So mm. welcome to the show, Ellen. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Rich. Uh, my name is Ellen Winnie, and I, like Dr. Lynette, I am an occupational therapist with uh, close to 20 years of experience. 15 of those have been specifically with autism and related disorders. And sensory integration has been a huge part of um, my treatment and uh, one of the, the main theories that I operate from as an occupational therapist, specifically with autism, but as we'll delve into, it's not just kids with autism who need their sensory systems addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to me as, as we're in our household and very aware that we're more aware now of that's a sensory issue for us. Like I'm sitting there and uh, Christy, for example, my wife, she'll talk about if we're unpacking something, um, the styrofoam packaging, mm-hmm. like coming out of the box mm-hmm. is like nails on a chalkboard to her. Mm-hmm. And so the kids will just open up a package and Christy will be like, can you do that in the other room? Mm-hmm. You know, like just, it's, so you're right. I mean, it's really for anybody, really. It's the way we process and intake some of these things going on around us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And once you become aware of it, it's fascinating. Like you said, like everybody has certain sensory preferences, certain sounds, certain feels, certain things that maybe just are like kind of like, oh, that's that's not right. Mm -hmm. That's off. But it comes a problem when those sensory preferences are stronger than just preferences and impact function. And that's where usually we need the help of your OT, um, who are specially trained in sensory processing to kind of see what's going on in the brain and how we can help those sensory processes uh, be better facilitated and interpreted. 
It's going to be an amazing episode. Make sure you guys stick around for it. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your family, what things you like to do. What are some of your favorite places to be? Well, um, these days, anywhere that's with real people is, is great. So I am a mom of five. I have uh three boys and two girls, 14 down to four. Uh, when I am not working in the field of autism, I'm also a homeschooling mom, so that takes up uh, quite a bit of my time. Um, but when I have free time, I love to read. Um, I'm pretty active in our church and just love to, to lately being outside and enjoying beautiful weather and sunshine is high on the list. Sunshine, definitely. I can't wait for the sunshine. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we got to know a little bit about Ellen, and uh, I'm really excited about jumping into this next segment where we can talk more about sensory processing. So we've got some of the best um, experts in the room, in my opinion, that we can possibly talk about this. So Lynette gave us a definition, a cursory definition of what sensory processing was when we first started. Ellen, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So if you think about it, we are bombarded with sensory information constantly. The people listening to this podcast obviously are hearing the the sound, the auditory input of our voices, but they also are seeing whatever is in front of them. They're feeling their clothing on their body. If maybe they're out listening to this while they're jogging, they're feeling the movement of their body. So there's lots of sensory input coming at us, both internally and externally. And so sensory processing is that ability where our body, first of all, registers that that input is coming in and then sends it up through the brainstem to the parts of the brain where it's going to be recognized and processed and then send input back to the body of what to do based on that input. And so um, it's something we all have, as we referenced earlier. Some of us have certain sensory preferences. um, But what we find in um, the field of not only autism but other uh, issues with sensory processing is sometimes the body doesn't register that information properly. And we can see a very obvious aspect of that would be if somebody was blind, they're not even going to register the visual input. But sometimes those sensory functions that take in the the sensory input are working fine, but there's a problem in processing it Mm. and then interpreting that information. And that's where uh, occupational therapists tend to come in to, to help that process and facilitate the normalization of sensory processing and interpretation. And so what does, sense, um, what does sensory processing have to do with childhood development, Lynette? Well, as Ellen said, if we're going to be taking in information about our world and acting on it, then the role of sensory processing in childhood development is to support proper learning and proper engagement with the world. And we see that at a very, very young age. A good example that Ellen and I will often give in the class that we teach um, is the rooting response when we have a newborn. Um, Most mommies, most babysitters, most daddies, anybody that has experience with newborns can sort of picture this, but they may not tie it to the sensory um, stimulus I'm about to identify. But when a newborn um, is in contact with um, the tip of the bottle, and the mom uses the nipple of the bottle to stroke or to touch the side of the baby's mouth, um, that baby will automatically root, turn the head Mm. um, to the source of the nutrient. And that's a very primitive, very understandable, um, very black and white response. The baby's 
designed to thrive based on a food source. And so um, that can't happen if the sensory system isn't intact because the stimulus may not be perceived. And then therefore, the motor response that Ellen referred to earlier can't kick in. So there's this beautiful symbiotic, you know, codependent, if you will, um, a correlated relationship between information coming into our body and processing and then having an output, usually a motor output. And so that's how it normally works for folks. That is how it normally works for folks. And in childhood development, there's various stages where we start off pretty reflexive, like we're a little bundle of reflexes when we're first born. It's a normal, spontaneous, subconscious, we would say autonomic. It happens spontaneously without us thinking about it, very low in the brain, like Ellen mentioned, the brainstem, um, very naturally. And it is dependent on good neurology. And I would like to point out that so much of early in childhood, the whole job of, of being a child really mm-hmm. is to, to allow this to mature and develop. And if you think of a typical two-year-old, particularly picture a two-year-old little boy, what are they doing all day long? They're running and they're jumping and they're jumping off the furniture and they're crashing into the couch cushions and they're climbing and they're going down the slides and they're very physical and very active. And that is the natural, normal way in somebody who's neurotypical that those sensory systems develop appropriately and the body learns to to register that information and then to process it properly. So that is a, a big part of toddlerhood is really this process of integrating and maturing the sensory systems because that becomes the foundation for everything else. And so, and how does this differ in autism? Well, for children in autism, uh, the wiring in the brain is different. And so, a lot of times, the, the pathways that would take in that sensory information and then send it to the higher centers in the brain are wired differently. And so, the child doesn't necessarily experience... Uh, sensory processing the same way that somebody neurotypically would. And so we see things both ways where they might be under-responsive or hypo-responsive, we call it, mm-hmm. to sensory input, where they're not registering where uh, somebody at a neurotypical level would. So for example, if somebody is under-responsive to movement, um, especially like spinning, we call that vestibular input, they might spin and 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 get off the swing and walk in a straight line. Their body didn't even register all of that rotation where some of us who are neurotypical would just watching that movement, right. more or less experiencing it, we would be sick if mm-hmm. not extremely dizzy. Um, children on the autism spectrum and adults as well can also be over or hyper responsive to sensory input. And so we see that a lot of times in auditory input where something that would, you know, barely register for us, they are, you know, holding their hands over their ears or mm-hmm. very sensitive to it or um, to the sense of smell where they can smell somebody's perfume two aisles away in Target and have a tired time focusing on anything else because that's just really overwhelmed them. So those are just some, some typical examples. I guess, again, every child on the spectrum is different and the variations in their sensory system might be different, but those are some of the, the typical ways we see things profile out. Another way that the brain of a child with autism differs um, from those without autism um, has to do with the brain's capacity to slow or altogether stop or inhibit. Mm -hmm. 
And we have, you know, nerves and neurons that allow us to amplify sensory stimulation if we need to do that. And there are certain nerve cells that actually dampen or quell the um, the energy or the action potential, we'd say in science, um, to make that impulse not so intense. And we take that for granted in neurotypical development. Um, but people listening to my voice right now are naturally inhibiting everything else going on around them auditorily. Mm-hmm. However, if a siren went flying by or came close to the house and pulled into their driveway, that siren would become salient for them versus my voice. And it should, because it signals something. But our bodies know enough on a subconscious, sub uh, brainstemmy sort of way, um, subcortical kind of way, to not pay attention to everything because we wouldn't function if we did. So we have this gift of inhibition. And so Ellen pointed out very eloquently that sometimes adults with autism or children with autism are too sensitive or not sensitive enough. But part of the underscoring problem to that is that they can't inhibit well. Mm-hmm. And that poses problems that show up in what we would might consider behavior. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So that might be, we hear parents say, my child can't concentrate because of the hum of the refrigerator. So something that we normally just inhibit or tune out, don't even pay attention unless someone draws our attention to it, can impair them from functioning. And we see this in classrooms where there is so much stimulation in a typical classroom with some other child rustling papers or the lawnmower going outside or the bells going. And there's just so much input, not to mention the visual input of lots of different people moving about and things hanging from the ceiling that the child cannot possibly tune into the teacher's voice saying, okay, children, open your math books to page 35 because there's just so much other input that they're not able to inhibit to be able to focus on what should be salient for them. To a degree where they're almost overstimulated and they're having trouble processing everything around them. And that's really what this is, right? So to go back to your point, I I was going to actually jump in with the same example. I had a student who, you know, was listening to the air conditioning run and wasn't realizing that that was what was holding them back. Mm. Like they were trying to figure out what that noise was, what it clicked, what that click was, what that running was in the room. And they were trying to figure out if they were okay versus me just thinking they just weren't paying attention to what right. I was saying in the classroom, right? right. So why, why else is it important for parents or teachers and, or those um, with autism themselves to understand that sens- what sensory processing is? Well, I think for teachers it's important, especially because of what you just said, Rich. We misinterpret what the child's attention is on or the reasons a child's attention are not maybe on us. So your excellent example of the air conditioner, um, that child can't inhibit that stimulus. And so they're forced to attend to it. Um, A teacher looking at that might come up with adjectives in their head. It's natural. It's normal. We do this as human beings. We interpret what we see and we put names to it. Mm -hmm. And so it might be um, disengaged. Um, My personal favorite (laughs) not really, Um, is aloof. That's Mm -hmm. a real interesting adjective and quite sad when people use that term, especially to identify or label a child with autism's behavior or response. Um, Or disinterested, disengaged, um, acting out, 
mm-hmm. you know, disrespectful. How about that one? Yeah. You know, where they don't even realize that there's another stimulus to attend to. So one of the reasons it's important to know and understand sensory processing is because it impacts what we talked about in our second podcast, which was readiness. Mm. If a child is unready to attend to Dr. Smith's voice, then he's unready, period. And it might be a sensory reason why he's unready, not a behavioral reason. Another thing that's really important to know is that there's research, Cecile Kira did in 2010, that said adults and teens with autism identify sensory processing challenges as their number one area of difficulty. That's telling. It really is. And this disordered sensory processing has been associated with impaired daily living skills, poor social participation, anxiety, and depressive symptoms. So it's critical that we truly understand the role that sensory processing plays, um, not only in children, but if it's not addressed in children, how it can linger into young adulthood and adulthood and continue to cause issues. And when you look at sensory processing, it really is the foundation for every other skill. Mm -hmm. You cannot have good attention skills if you don't have good sensory processing. You don't have good eye-hand coordination if you don't have good sensory processing. And it goes further down. If the child doesn't have good high-hand coordination, they don't have good attention skills, then they're they're going to have poor social outcomes. You know, Mm -hmm. if you think about even a child that's high-functioning, you know, when they're picking teams for kickball, Mm -hmm. no one's going to want the kid that doesn't have good eye-hand or foot coordination or can't pay attention to the game. And so it affects their self-esteem and self-confidence. So it's really this whole uh, spiraling effect that we can trace all the way back to poor sensory processing. So that's why it's so critical to understand it, to acknowledge it, and to address it. And I want to have Ellen repeat those areas that were identified in the study. We know that these teens and adults identified sensory processing as their number one challenge. Mm -hmm. Out of the mouth of babes, that's so important. But let's go over again, Ellen, and you say it, I'm going to count the areas that you identify. So what is affected by poor sensory processing? Impaired daily living skills. So that's a pretty broad category. That can go into a lot of things in and of itself. But Mm -hmm. daily living skills, poor social participation, Mm -hmm. anxiety, and depressive symptoms. Okay, four major things impacted or the result of poor processing. And some of them not so fun. Anxiety. Yeah. Depression. You know, these are heavy things that our kids and adults deal with and their families. And again, sometimes we're not really in tune to the difficulty. And so if we're missing the sensory processing problems, we're not understanding the behavior. And then the, f- the person experiencing the issue doesn't have the support. Mm-hmm. And so not only are they likely to maybe have those kind of outcomes with anxiety or depressive disorders, um, they don't have a sense that there's any other way to be. Right. Well, and I'm listening to you say this, and and that's such a broad stroke Mm -hmm. of some of these symptoms that can be categorized as something else. So it really could be something that goes missed, Mm -hmm. these, these sensory processing issues for our students as well. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, the way they're often labeled is behavioral mm-hmm. problems. That's and right. they're, the child is labeled as being manipulative because, you know, they will, won't wear jeans mm-hmm. anywhere. And mm-hmm. so, you know, 
that runs into a problem and a power struggle sometimes when it's time to get dressed and they get labeled as being difficult or stubborn or manipulative because they know that, you know, this, we give way too much credit, I think, sometimes to kids on the spectrum to think that they know that what they're going to do is impact me and I'm going to react this way and then they're going to react this way. Like the metacognition is not really where they're at as a four-year-old refusing to put on jeans. It's usually something, you know, much more basic like a sensory process issue, but we interpret it differently if we don't, we don't have that knowledge. And these parents are trying the best they can, but, you know, they need, the, they need to be empowered to know what the underlying cause is because that changes completely how we approach the situation. And I think that parents miss it because they themselves have effective sensory processing. Right. right. They're clipping along at the speed of light. They can tolerate their clothes. They can tolerate the smell of the cupcakes or the liver and onions, whatever we're making in the kitchen, it all makes sense to them literally and figuratively because their senses process it and um, interpret and allow them to function through those sensory experiences. Whereas the child with autism or other neurological disorders don't. It halts them or it changes their capacity to do something. So we want to understand it because it's so foreign to us that if we don't, we're going to accidentally not support our young adults or our children or our older adults, for that matter, as much as we could. And we all want to help as much as we can. So significantly important to understand it, address it, and respect it. Like, this is their body. This is their brain. This is how they're wired. And they're not having fun mm -hmm. living in this existence, necessarily. They need our help. And they don't always have the words to ask for it. It will come out in behavior, posture, um, seeking certain parts of a room or avoiding certain stimuli. If you really work with your occupational therapists in the school setting and or private setting, particularly private setting because a lot of times in the school-based model, um, the children's needs tend to manifest kind of in a motor sort of way, a fine motor sort of way where we know that really there's a lot of underscoring sensory issues. So sometimes those private-based therapists can delve a little deeper into those needs and train a parent to help them and understand it and treat it sort of as an extension of their own service, but maybe in the home setting. I think that's one of the beautiful things of, of the success approach is the fact that um, it really does encourage you to build that team, that collaborative team of people who might be responsible for caring for your child. So it could be not just the parents, but the teachers and other caretakers in their lives to help them to understand overcoming some of these barriers. That's right. It reminds me, Rich, of uh, podcast number one, uh, where I introduced the term transdisciplinary. Um, and one thing we know about sensory processing problems is that it's going to show no matter who's around. Mm -hmm. So if you have a good transdisciplinary team, if it's a mom working with a bus driver or a bus driver working with a therapist or the therapist working with a doctor, whatever, whoever's on that team the understanding and respect for that processing problem um, can be shared and supported so that the child can resolve as fast as possible by everybody understanding and doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So um, who can diagnose sensory processing problems? So typically it might come up as a part of the autism diagnosis. It's now with the DSM-5, one of the diagnostic criteria that can be considered as differences um, in responding to sensory stimulation. But most often uh, the occupational therapist on your team is the one who's going to be trained to diagnose and to then uh, address 
those uh, those differences. And usually it's not just your um, occupational therapist off the street. Occupational therapy is a very broad field. So yes, some sure. people specialize in hand therapy, some are specialized in, you know, neurological rehabilitation like stroke and spinal cord. So you really want to look for an occupational therapist that has had additional training in sensory processing and sensory integration. And there is a whole certification track um, called sensory integration and praxis testing. Um, it's SIPT um, sub tests. And um, it's very intensive training, intensive neuroanatomy and neurophys, followed by um, mastery level um, implementation of these 17 subtests that together comprise the SIPT. Um, and there are great therapists who aren't certified in sensory integration or not trained in SIPT to actually render SI or what we call sensory integration treatment. Um, but if you do get a certified therapist, you know they've had the training. Right. Um, so it is important to seek that out, because Ellen's right, occupational therapy is incredibly broad, and even within pediatrics, not everybody specializes in sensory. And within that, there's a subspecialty of autism, mm. because their particular processing is really unique. Um, there's a phenomenal... Um, condition, I would call it, um, called mosaic processing. And it is kind of just like what it sounds. I like to always tell parents about it because it just points out how different their their brains process. But a couple people with it who have written about it, who are adults that can articulate their thoughts and perceptions, um, describe it as mosaic processing. And it's basically little tiny snippets of auditory and or visual stimuli. Um, and it doesn't come all at once. It comes in chunks. Mm. And um, one of the women with it is this amazing woman named Donna Williams. And Donna has written a book about it. And in one of the chapters of the book, she talks about um, walking into a room. Or no, sorry, not walking into a room. She's seated in a room. And all of a sudden, she notices um, the sound of a door ajar. And then a few milliseconds later, she gets the flash of a paw. And then a few milliseconds later, she gets the swoosh of a tail. And then she hears maybe um, a low purr. And then next she gets like a green eye. <laughs> and she puts all this together very quickly and realizes that her cat came in the room. But by the time she gets those four or five mosaic tiny pieces of information, the cat's on her lap. Right, right. <laughs> so apply that to function. You know, how do you cross the street with mosaic perception? Mm -hmm. Probably not very safely. Right. And so we can't take for granted our own sensory systems, but we do. And again, it's by design. The brain wants it to be automatic and subconscious because if we paid attention to everything, we wouldn't function. We'd be too preoccupied. Um, but these people are stuck in that um, sometimes uni system, like only one system working, just sound, and the others turn off, or just smell, and the others turn off. It's very interesting, the differences. Um, but something like mosaic perception is probably one of the most complex and not so common problems, but it can be something like that compared to something like hypersensitivity to touch which shows up in things like children or adults not wanting to wear mittens or hats mm -hmm. or not tolerating tooth brushing. Parents talk about not tolerating hair brushing. Um, I oftentimes go to the dentist with my patients, with my children. Um, I've gone into the OR before 
because the anesthesiologist has to touch the child to get them to have the anesthesia put into their veins. And I'm there to help dampen the child, not only my familiar, but I have the therapy touch and the therapy technique to dampen that child and the part of the skin where that shot's going to go in and or over their face, which is more common, um, to tolerate the mass so they can go out, be out and, and have surgery, go under. So if you think about it, our sensory systems are in play all day long, and these kids need help to get theirs to integrate. I'm extremely needlephobic, so I may have to borrow you the next time I go in for blood work or something like that. We would that, go with the gas it's, mask. Well, it sounds it sounds so relaxing. Like that might be, be a pleasant experience, you know, at that point in time. Perhaps. Right? <laughs> the um, I want to go back to something you guys talked about earlier in terms of reaction to these overstimuli, right? And um, the whole idea of what we're perceiving as, as the child doing, which could be this whole avoidance technique. And we see students that will, or children, I always go students because that's where my mind goes, you know, that will stay glued into their headphones because it's their way of escaping the overstimulus that they might be experiencing in that. So how can I help um, my child if he or she has sensory processing problems? Well, I think the very first thing is sensory integration treatment has to be individualized to the specific child. Um, so you need to be working with an occupational therapist for very specific to your child recommendations based on an assessment of their sensory systems and how they're processing or not processing things particularly. So that's the number one recommendation is um, the child's an individual, and it would be negligent to say, here, if your child is oversensitive to sound, this is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You really have to work with your occupational therapist. And what the occupational therapist will usually do after a thorough assessment and interview with you and observing the child and that whole process is write what is called a sensory diet. And the diet is not what we put into our bodies in terms of food, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. of what we have our bodies experience in terms of sensory input. And so it should be a very collaborative process between the, the therapist and the parent or the main caregivers. You know, obviously, again, we're talking about this team approach. So if the child's in school full-time, ideally the, the teacher or the support personnel at school should be involved. And it's really looking and saying, what does this child's body need to function at an optimal level of readiness yes. throughout the day? And finding regular and predictable intervals where sensory input is going to be provided to allow that body to start the integration process where they're able to then process and utilize and interpret and use a, an adaptive response to it. Um, and so we find in the process of sensory integration that a child who might be under responsive to say example, again, the vestibular input with the spinning, mm -hmm. that one of the things that an occupational therapist might prescribe is regular intervals of spinning. Because if the body is getting it at regular intervals at a certain intensity that the OT would prescribe, the brain starts to register right. and it's almost like a switch goes off and that, that neuron completion happens, connection happens where all of a sudden their vestibular system gets turned on to a new level and then it starts to normalize and right. they need less spinning and less and less and then it's to a more normal amount. But again, that needs to be uh, accurately diagnosed and prescribed, but that's just one example. Um, the other thing that the OT will work with is 
while we're getting more integrated, helping with just some practical ways to adapt while we're waiting for the sensory systems to to catch up and Mm -hmm. to to integrate. So that might be, this will sound familiar to you, Rich. It (laughs) might be. (laughs) If your child is dumping lotions and lathering it all over the place or powders and all of that, things that sometimes when the parent is in the situation, it's just hard to to be objective and be like, well, this is, you know, a way to go around that. So it might be telling the parent, we're going to lock all of that stuff up, except (laughs) for the one time a day where under mom or dad's supervision, we're giving them that tactile, that, that touch input in a way that is therapeutic with parameters around it and boundaries to allow them to, to integrate that tactile system while saving mom and dad's sanity in, in the meantime. <laughs> Very important factor. <laughs> okay, so I just have to share this story with everyone who's listening right now. So Maddie, you know, had her sensory processing um, that she was going through and yeah, very, very young at this point. We just finished shopping at Costco the night before, but still hadn't put everything away. And so I wake up Saturday morning. Maddie's up, raring to go. I said, well, we'll let Christy sleep in. So I'm going to be super dad. And I bring Maddie downstairs. <laughs> and I laid down on the couch. And I woke up gasping for air. <laughs> and our blue couch that once um, was completely blue was now all white with the exception of the body outline of dad who was laying on the couch because apparently I fell back to sleep. Madison had gotten into the five-pound bag of flour that was sitting on the floor, and I woke up to her saying, it's snowing, and there was flour everywhere. So Christy comes downstairs, and she says, I thought you had it. I'm like, oh, I did. And she said, clearly. You know, because... Dad had to go grab the vacuum and clean up. But Maddie was clearly trying to satisfy a need at that point in time. Yeah, Yeah, and what Maddie wasn't doing, particularly before the event, is plotting it out. Mm -hmm. She wasn't saying, I'm going to make my dad gasp for air. Because he's covered in flour. Yeah, by (laughs) clouding his air supply around him. (laughs) Such that it's the outline of a body left there and mom has to come and and break up the party and say what is going on here she didn't plan that we're drawn we're moved by our sensory inclinations if you will um and hers her threshold ellen and i talk about this a lot in my class the threshold for her to feel or to register or take in in this case the flower or any other tactile input it was so high that she had to get a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's unusual the things that they'll seek out sometimes. So Ellen had a great example of how we put the lotions away. She can't access anything for a while except for one time a day. That's a great approach. That's going to help. Sometimes that's not enough. And we actually have to bring other sensations to her skin, like a brushing technique, the very specialized technique that we use, a surgical brush that highly trained, highly qualified therapists can do. Or we might um, suggest a bucket of rice and beans that the child can dig through up to the elbows to find marbles or letters or something else in a transdisciplinary way that maybe they need to work on for school, you know, Mm -hmm. letters identifying academics or numbers or something. But it's strategic by the OT on their part to have her sink into this deep bucket of rice and beans that has temperature value and tactile value and gravity and resistance and all sorts of, and sound value and sight. I mean, there's a lot of multi-sensory things we can do. So while flower was her medium (laughs) at that point, (laughs) there's other things that I bet you if we dosed Maddie before she got to the flower, 
she would be more adaptive and wouldn't have to find it. That's the thing. It's proactive. And I always use this example in class, and Ellen knows just what I'm going to say, but I equate it to anemia. You know, you don't swallow a bottle of iron when you're on your deathbed with anemia. You take one every day so you never get anemic. And that's really important for parents to know because they oftentimes, like we talked about in our earlier um, podcast, they feel hopeless. They don't understand it. They don't know what to do about it. But something as simple as a bucket of beans that a therapist has to prescribe, you don't just do it because if you're the kind of kid that doesn't need that or is going to have a negative response, then you've rocked the nervous system in ways you don't want to deal with. You don't want to undo that. You have to go under your direction of an occupational therapist. But it's and that it's treatable, it's fixable is probably an okay word as well. As long as that therapist is really in tune to the individual needs, has assessed every system, there's a lot of sensory systems. We talked about vestibular, which is balance and touch, which is tactile, but there's others. And they all need to be evaluated very carefully and a beautifully balanced and sensory rich um, sensory diet should be put in play for a very specific amount of time with regular spot checks and then weeded out when the child is ready. And one of the number one issues we have in OT is sometimes people who are engaging in the sensory diet process and prescribing this don't ever pull it out. Mm. And so it kind of gets a bad rap that, well, it didn't work. You know, well, it didn't work because you didn't fade it out. It, you know, it doesn't, it's not supposed to be when the child's 18, you're still brushing them or prescribing beans and rice, right? Right. So it's just as important to discharge or discontinue the intervention as it is to assess for it and treat it. Absolutely. And um, again, to, to think about what is going to be age appropriate, you know, we focus a lot on children, but we've had many um, young adults and adults that come to us mm. And we have to be a little bit more creative on, you know, what are those um, sensory diet activities and, and really teaching as the child gets older, teaching them to recognize when they are starting to feel dysregulated. When, um, you know, a lot of times the kids, it, as a symptom of the sensory processing difficulties, they do a lot of what they do to be able to maintain their state of readiness or to be able to attend. So we see, you know, teachers saying, well, he can't do his work. It's sitting in a seat, but, you know... If he's standing, he can, or bouncing on, you know, a therapy ball, they can attend. And so helping the child to know what their body needs to function at its best and then to advocate for themselves in an appropriate way to get that. And that's a lot of the work that we do as they age into young adults is really teaching that self-awareness of self-regulation and how to, to meet those needs in a way that's going to be socially appropriate. Yeah, and appropriate to even the work setting. We work with some people on the job site where this is a time of day where a person gets overwhelmed and we tell them you have to kind of schedule a walk around the grounds, get out of the environment. That's good for everybody, right? Right. But for the strategic purpose, again, the success approach is a strategic model. It's intentional. So a strategic goal accomplished is to leave the work site that let's say maybe has a high pitched kind of sound or fluorescent lights that's bothering somebody to go and get some reprieve from that from your nervous system and come back a little more refreshed. You know, Google has uh, in, in their campus, they have these isolation pods uh, where you can go and kind of retreat in this area and just kind yeah. of pull the shield over. And I just think that this is such a genius process that could really help someone with a sensory need. Well, chances are they consulted with an amazing occupational therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen, was it you? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I would be driving something besides a Corolla if I had <laughs> that consult gig. And so I guess, and, and the reaction to 
their reaction to a sensory need that's not being met is just as important as a, as a parent, as a teacher, as a caretaker to understand that sensory diet. I love that term. I'm bringing it back because I totally forgot about the whole yeah. idea of the sensory diet. I know what it is and I know how to function within it, but I love the term. Yeah. Just and then equating it back to nutrition. Um, how can we help someone begin to identify? Because I, I'm, I'm thinking back to Madison in preschool. The way we kind of got tipped off to the reaction in class was uh, through her amazing teacher, Andrea Ralph, who kind of has been through the success approach training mm-hmm. um, with you guys and really kind of spoke to you. Maybe you want to go and see Integrations Treatment Center. Maybe you want to go seek out someone who's an occupational therapist to look into this because we think that there's a need or a misfire. How can we get ourselves to that level to identify it? If we're not aware, I think for most parents, it's intuitive a little bit that there's something not quite right because you're comparing it to yourself in a way of saying like, that seems like an overreaction or why do I need to say their name five times before they, they turn towards me and make eye contact or whatever the case might be. So some of it is a little bit intuitive, but we don't just know how, how to name it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think there are great resources out there to kind of give a, a cursory view of them. Um, certainly, you know, we discuss some of that in the class and get some general uh, information out there. But there are wonderful resources out there Um Lucy Jane Miller is a great occupational therapist, Winnie Dunn. They all have information that they've made, you know, on their websites and things like that that are friendly for for parents to read to kind of put it uh, in layman's terms to learn a a little bit more so you can identify it so that you go into your consultation with an occupational therapist with maybe a little bit more uh, concrete language around what you're experiencing. Um, And some of it is just observing natural, normal childhood development. And so... That's hard a lot of times if it's your first child or and you didn't grow up around a lot of cousins and all of that. But even just going to the playground for a day and watching neurotypical children, you get a really good insight into what is normal, whatever that means, behavior, mm-hmm. but typical neurotypical <laughs> we have air behavior. In the studio all around right now, yeah. <laughs> neurotypical <laughs> behavior, and you can kind of see, you know, where is my child? Not that it's a direct comparison, but where is my child maybe doing different? But again, some of those red flags that we might look for is oversensitivity to, to sound, to touch. If you accidentally brush up against them and they hit you or mm-hmm. completely jerk away, that's a red flag, you know, mm-hmm. or um, that, you know, again, we said it's typical for a two-year-old to run and crash into things over and over, to spin and spin and spin. But if a child is getting older, Yes. And they're six years old and seven years old, and this has never been addressed, and they're still constantly on the go, mm-hmm. constantly seeking input. It, it's something to worth looking into. And I would add to that um, practical things like mealtime. You know, watch your eaters. Are they picky eaters? Not so much because they don't like the taste, but because they can't tolerate the texture. Mm-hmm. And that usually goes with things like not doing well at the dentist, not tolerating toothbrushing, not tolerating face washing. I mean, there's if you think about that, there's there's profiling we kind of do in occupational therapy where their profiles emerge because they answer questions a certain way or we can observe a certain consistency within a tactile system, for instance. Um, or things like, you know, we went to the family reunion and everybody else took their shoes off, ran across the, the hill, down into the sand and into the water, and my kid froze wouldn't even put a step of uh, one foot onto the grass. Well, that's probably because they couldn't tolerate it, not because they weren't being social. Mm-hmm. Looks that way. <clears throat> Has nothing to do with the, the family, just 
didn't tolerate this sensation. So when you understand the the diversity among the individuals with autism, the autism population, and how they process, you understand that it's usually different. Mm. Um, and that difference, okay, we just need to identify it because if they want to get better and their family wants them to get better and it's a dysfunction, like they can't move through space because everything is too hypersensitive, then we need to help that child or adult regulate and integrate those senses so they can function. It's all about function. Well, thank you so much, Ellen, for being with us today. Um, always having Dr. Lynette Scottiswatilla with us as well. Um, if you want to check out the success approach, they do have the online training. So make sure you can go to the Integration Treatment Center website. We will put that in the show notes for you so that you can check out the training. You can do it online, self-paced. You can get to see the amazing Ellen Winnie sort of in person on video, right? Yeah, right. So that um, they, they can get in on some of this great stuff that's happening with the success approach in, in helping your um, individual with autism. So thanks again for coming, Ellen. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. I had a blast. I'd love to come back again. Oh, we, we'll have you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. We have Lynette's challenge for us uh, coming up next. So the challenge for today, folks, is to identify in your child, to really look at your child for poor processing. You want to look for signs of poor sensory processing. How do they respond to touch? How do they do with smell? What do they look like when they're done moving? Or are they seeking out too much movement? Look for signs of poor processing. And if you have a hunch that you found some, Consult with an occupational therapist to help identify it, the intensity or extent of it, and the best way to treat it. In our previous episode, we discussed what the success approach is, and we defined it. Uh, we've talked about observing readiness in the second episode and taking in that information. And in the last episode, we talked about making sense of it. Uh, once we're ready to take in that inf information. So it's logical then in this episode that we looked at sensory processing where our body might be having trouble manifesting how to, to give an output for it, right, Lynette? Yeah. Um, the problems that we see in sensory processing stop us from eventually connecting with and making success of our world. So when we think about sensory processing, we want to understand that we all do it. It's very normal. It's very, very subconscious, happens at the base of our brain, and we need it to be able to get information from our environment and our body so we can function. We hope that you learned something today to help you on your journey with autism. We'll share more on our next Connect with Success podcast. Until then, expect success. The Success Approach is a registered service mark protected under intellectual property law. Unless otherwise specified, all music, audiovisual, and proprietary content shared in this podcast is property of Autism Productions, LLC, and its sister agency, Integrations Treatment Center. The use of this content is unlawful without the expressed written consent of aforementioned agency. For more information about The Success Approach, please go to our website at www.thesuccessapproach.org.